I play the maracas, I go chick chicky boom, chick chicky boom. Welcome to No Laughing Matter with Cuba Pete, a show that takes a critical look at the disparities between medical school education and society's growing healthcare inequities. Join Dr. Pedro Cuba Pete Greer each episode as he interviews the experts working to transform medical education and ensuring that future doctors are trained to provide equitable and compassionate health care for all communities. Dr. Greer received the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2009, honoring his dedication to providing health care to underserved populations. As Dean of Roseman University College of Medicine in Las Vegas, Dr. Greer is committed to creating a medical school of the future where students embrace the need to unite the heart and science of healthcare. And now, the host of No Laughing Matter with Cuba Pete, Dr. Pedro Cuba Pete Greer. Well, welcome to Cuba Pete, No Laughing Matter. And hello, my name is uh, Pedro Joe Greer, and I am the dean at Roseman University College of Medicine. This show is about interviewing some spectacular people to see what that interaction is between what they do in the world and what we as doctors have to learn and perhaps get this into our curriculum. Well, today I'm with somebody extremely special. I had the great pleasure of meeting a few months back mm -hmm. and she was introduced to me by Vicki and she has this incredible organization. But before I go to that, let me just go back in a little bit in time. 2007 was a very difficult year for you. Very difficult. In 2007, her oldest son was uh, a student at University of Nevada, Reno, correct? Yep. And he unfortunately died in a motor vehicle accident. Correct. That was early on in the year. I think it was in May or something. You went up there for bereavement and, ser and uh, see what type of services were offered. And, and you came across some materials mm -hmm. from a program called Solace Tree Program. Yep. And her son's name, who is, uh, it's, and I wrote it down here, Adam Thomas. Mm -hmm. uh, she decided to name this place Adam's Place, a bereavement center. I think well, the first one in Las Vegas, if I'm not mm -hmm. mistaken. Yep. But Kelly Thomas Boyer here has done something even more special. First of all, I got to announce that her youngest son, is about to make her a grandmother. Okay, so that's super cool. <laughs> that's very cool. Do we know boy or girl yet or no? Not yet. Yeah, I didn't know either. I mean, why do they keep these things from us, for goodness sakes? But uh, when she saw what was going on with children and the fact that we didn't have a bereavement center in our community, she realized that it's not just the death of a person. It could be a divorce. It could be uh, expulsion from the country mm -hmm. where somebody gets deported and children are left alone and they need the support services. Mm -hmm. And Kelly, right now, how many kids are you taking care of? We have 50 right now. 50? Yep, and that doesn't include the children that we're reaching through our school programs. So we believe that training schools to use our curriculum will exponentially broaden the number of kids that will get support in place, taking transportation out of a, a from being a barrier to getting to our center so they can have a support group in place at their school. Uh, and we project seeing about 1,500 kids that way. Why don't we take this time for you to describe everything about Adam's Place? 
Oh, what a quilt it's And the created. fact that they are also on our campus. <laughs> yes, and it feels like home there. Um, you know, when we started this in 2009, we received some funding from a New York 9-11 uh, Foundation that mission was to start a children's bereavement program in every metropolitan city in the country. So we did not have one here in Southern Nevada. And so we started and hit the ground running because our social service network is slim and particularly for children in mental health and wellness, it's very slim. So our peer support group program and system allows us to be very effective and in, in, uh, financially uh, um, cost effective uh, to provide support groups for kids in their, in their peer groups, in littles, middles, and teens, and um, give them healthy coping, provide healthy modeling, give the family some stability, uh, and, and we have defined loss to include the disappearance of a parent for whatever reason, the dis uh, disruption through um, disappearance or loss of a family member. We know about um, 25,000 children in Clark County School District will experience the death of a parent by the time they turn 18. So every year that number alone is a large number, let alone compiling the additional types of losses with the deportation, incarceration, um, uh, fam family separation for whatever reason. And now during COVID, how many children have lost parents or caretakers? Yeah, uh, so what we've seen in the past year and a half uh, is uh, overdose is our number one reason for referral. We, ha we are the family, of, we're helping the families that are survivor survivals of that cause of death. And, um, and that, when we first started this in 2009, it was heart attack because heart disease is usually out there right. at 45, right? But far and away, suicide, uh, overdose, um, COVID. So the, the um, uh, other deaths have continued happening, cancer. Um, we've just added some unfortunate statistics in our community from death by um, drug use. Which is now... Uh a pandemic in this country, yeah. to say the least. And we've seen also suicidal ideation and suicides in children. Yes. That are. Yep. So mental health is, I, in my opinion, the number one public health problem in our country. Mm -hmm. Superimpose that with the loss of somebody mm -hmm. or the abandonment of somebody mm -hmm. and all of that. When we don't even have the infrastructure mm -hmm. to be able to prevent and treat many of these things, mm -hmm. you become one of the most important safety nets that exists. Because this is so vital, I'm not a pediatrician, but this could adversely affect the child for the rest of their life. Absolutely, I've given presentations where gentlemen would come up to me early 70s and said, I, I didn't realize the cause of my alcoholism had been the loss, you know, I didn't have support, validation, acknowledgement of the death of my father when I was seven years old. And I just kept chasing that um, throughout my adulthood. And I look at the decisions that I, or choices that I've made because I was in that with, uh, without having support. So we know that on death row, 99% of the folks had an early loss. We know that statistic. So as a society, if we look at prevention, mental health you know, and wellness, and what preventative measures can we use, peer support group is a very cost-effective way that when a child experiences an adverse childhood experience, what we refer to as ACE, in the, in the, right. right? We know no matter what demographic they belong to, economically, ethnically, gender-wise, they move into an at-risk category. So if we know that and we can provide options 
to provide support and uh, healthy coping modeling and review, then we're doing a great thing because we're gonna lessen the kids that end up, what's hard in the seat, sit that I, seat that I sit in sometimes is seeing that we spend a lot of money on rehabilitation and not so much in mental health prevention and intervention when we, when we know that there's been a risk or a, an event. I, I came across a very interesting organization last week. Uh, it's called the Defensive Line. Mm -hmm. And it was because it was a defense event for the San Francisco 49ers whose oh. little sister took her own life. Mm. So they've gotten this whole thing. His parents mm -hmm. have all put this together. But one of the things that they're doing is going to schools. They're based out of uh, Dallas. And the, he, he just stood up and said, we have to say the S word. Yep. You Absolutely. have to be able to bring this into the conversation. And I know we don't do that in medicine, mm. where we have a much higher rate of suicide in students and physicians and the rest of society. Mm -hmm. A lot of that has to do inherently within the culture of medicine, things like that. But one of the things that I try to get out of the show is take the brilliant minds and, and this incredible passion mm -hmm. that you have, and how do I translate that into something that makes doctors better? I think you brought up a really important point just now about ACE. Mm -hmm. Shouldn't adult doctors be asking their adult patients if they had adverse childhood experiences? Yep. Because those consequences, and very interestingly, mm -hmm. ACE was used in the very first study uh, attributing it that to adult diseases by Kaiser Permanente with obesity. And they found out it was because of ACE. Mm -hmm. And so do we, we need to train our doctors differently. So that goes into medical school and, and graduate medical education. Mm -hmm. we, and, and, and the aspect of explaining to a student mm -hmm. the importance of some things we lack in my profession, compassion sometimes, yeah. empathy. Mm -hmm. You know what, my husband was a physician and um, I have a stepdaughter as a physician and, you know, I've done a lot of reading because I watched how much uh, their work ethic and the course loads and just uh, and and my reading, if they aren't given empathy, if you're not given empathy, you can't mirror empathy. Right. And so if you had that adverse childhood experience and you didn't have an empathetic ear or face give, showing you what that looks like you're gonna grow up to be this physician that can't marry it out to your patients. Um, well, you know, Kelly, there, there's something, apart from your brilliance <laughs> and your vision, a lot of people have had losses in their life, mm -hmm. but very few, if any, have gone to the extent that you have to create this world for others so they don't suffer the same way. And you know, we're in a time in our society right now where there's too much suffering. Yep. Too much violence, too much, you know, Arguments ending in really loud voices, mm -hmm. as opposed to listening. Yeah. And and empathy goes, and that's what empathy is. It's listening, yeah. and reacting to what is being said. And I know that one of the things we need to change in medical education is have empathy around all the time. Mm -hmm. It's very well documented that doctors or medical students' empathy level hits the floor after the third year, and it doesn't really climb much higher. I, I remember sitting on a panel 20 years ago at UVA, and there they had the head of the School of Architecture, and I'm wondering why is the head of the School of Architecture sitting here on a medical panel? Well, the reason was his wife had cancer, had mm -hmm. gone through treatment at one of the top centers in the country up at UVA, but he and his wife did not feel any empathy. So he wanted to architecturally 
change the surroundings, to be more empathetic for the patient. So we have to teach that to our physicians. And I know that the argument is always, well, you're trying to protect yourself with all these different things. What are we protecting ourselves from? <laughs> you know, I heard the word emotional labor. And my dear, uh, good co friend and, and colleague uh, in this field, Children's Friedman, Dr. David Schoenfeld, who's at the University or at UCLA's Children's Medical Center, talks a lot about physician interacting with um, empathy and having empathy for themselves and for their, their teams of folks. Because that's the other thing I see sometimes in medicine is that it's, it's not much empathy for their teammates and, and, and unfortunately for the patient too. And, and it's, the patient feels it. No matter how brilliant you are as a surgeon or as a diagnostician or just as a physician, if you don't have empathy with your patient, yeah. if you don't have compassion, mm -hmm. you're not helping your patient. Mm -hmm. It's it's because we're humans, right? Because we're we're human beings. <laughs> it's not just a matter of the physical part behind it. Mm -hmm. it. It has to do all that. Now, if you were to change or add something to a medical school curriculum, mm. what would you do, and how would you do that? Um, that's a great question, and I'm um, my my. My experience would, uh, would, I think my answer would be to provide opportunities to interact with, with people on a, on, a, on a team basis mm -hmm. and be a part of their team and understand where they're coming from. And I know that sounds kind of cliche, but I believe your Genesis program is really right on track because you're looking at where they are phys physically living, where they, what things are influencing, do they have access to good food, do, do is there... Uh, uh, a recreational space that's free to them to access, like what are all the determinants on? And so as a physician, I may not have had, may I, I might've had a completely different type of upbringing uh, in, my, in my own experience, but I think allowing physicians to have the opportunity to uh, uh, interact without having to label it or come up with a code would be and really it, helpful. No, 100%. And, and the reason we do that with an interdisciplinary team. No Laughing Matter with Cuba Pete is sponsored by Roseman University College of Medicine in Las Vegas. We're transforming education by reimagining healthcare and committing to serving the health needs of all communities. And by our generous sponsors listed in the description of this episode. It's the physician needs to know that they can't always be the king or queen. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's things that we have no ideas about. Mm -hmm. And when we're going to start having students there, as we did at our prior institution, we never allow the medical student to ask, how do you feel? Mm -hmm. They have to ask, what is your most urgent need? Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is very simple. Most medical students, overwhelmingly, the 80% are in the top quintile of American income. Mm -hmm. So they have never been exposed to these things. Mm -hmm. They borrow more money on an annual basis than most the average income of a household in this, in this country. And the average medical student today comes from a household that has two to three times the national average. Mm -hmm. So they have no reality check to what is going on. What's really? And so when you're in medical school, all these tests are really important. Did you get your mammogram? Have you had your colonoscopy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But if you can't afford rent, if you have a child that you just lost, mm -hmm. if you have all these other issues going on, guess what? It's not that important. Mm -hmm. And the other part, too, is, is the broken system we have. Mm -hmm. If you're an hourly worker, chances are you don't have bonuses. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you don't have 
uh, benefits. You don't have, you can't take a day off to go see the doctor. It's going to cost you 20% of your income. Mm -hmm. So there's all these other factors mm -hmm. that become important in people's lives. And mm -hmm. by sending the student into the community, into somebody else's household, mm -hmm. we also change that power differential. Mm -hmm. No longer are you coming to the ivory tower. Mm -hmm. You are sitting in somebody's living room. Mm -hmm and you have to actually speak with them. Mm -hmm. If not, you can listen to our Genesis team because they know how to communicate extremely well. Mm -hmm. But I think with bereavement and, and how a family feels, mm -hmm. that has to be taught in medical school. Mm -hmm. It has to be taught. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of lessons that we learn in a lot of things we do that are not well taught in medical schools, how a hospice patient is taken care of mm -hmm. with the compassion, mm -hmm. with not ordering things you don't need, uh, need to order, mm -hmm. spending time with the patient, but spending time with the patient's family, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. it's, it, 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 it all comes together with that. Mm -hmm. So where do you see Adam's place in 10 years? Because the situation is not getting better. <laughs> no. And, you know, in a city uh, like ours where it's all about winning and having fun, grief has not been the best word to have associated You're with right. the, uh, it's not as sexy, but with, with um, the, uh, <laughs> The pandemic, we now grief, we recognize that almost everyone is coping with some type of loss. And we're able to talk about it a bit more. And there's, uh, we were talking before the show about, okay, the pandemic, recovery, uh, American Recovery uh, Rescue funding's coming in, but what are we doing to add to the infrastructure and add to sustainable ways to address mental health and wellness? And I think when we say Adam's Place um, is heading into training, we've trained over 25 schools to use our curriculum. And what we found is that we have social workers and counselors in place, but they don't always have the tools because they still have to work within a matrix of, uh, do we have some statistics on what, what, what impact this curriculum has uh, benefited children or not? And so, if I could have found this curriculum 12 years ago, I would have bought it. But over the years, we've developed it with tools, with surveys and ways to assess and to um, coach feelings of accomplishment, not completion, but accomplishment, so that children can feel that, that wherever they are on their grief journey, they are gaining skills and they're, they're gaining experience and they can even mentor others in the, in, in, as a part of that journey. But we've, we see training getting out to mental health folks who would like to run programs that have an evidence-based program that they want to use. Um, we believe that bringing in great speakers from around the world is one of the things that we're particularly good at and we bring them in. We don't, we don't always advertise it, but we bring them in and we try to promote medical education, doing um, grand rounds, making sure we bring in as many resources. When I met David, we were in Boston, it was, right during the um, uh, recession with the um, foreclosure, we were number two in the country. And I said, listen, I need you to come to Las Vegas. We, we've had a tsunami here. We, we're on an island, we need your help. And he goes, okay, so, so he came. So I really do believe that we are training and bringing in and, and hopefully also encouraging the rest of the community to say, join us, we'd like to build a children's bereavement center. I have no name game in this, no, I think we've accomplished a lot with what we've done, but we'd love to be a part of a group that recognizes that a children's bereavement center is needed in the community to support children, to help families reorganize, and then to help in medical education to bring in those opportunities to, um, to help educate others to grief sensitivity. So let me see, collaboration. <laughs> yes. <laughs> working with other people. Yes. Having a vision. Mm -hmm. 
the most important word I said was collaboration, mm -hmm. working together. We're not going to solve these things. And that's the beauty mm -hmm. of Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. it's a, it, it has a real community sense. Mm -hmm. But that beauty is only enhanced because it has people like you, people like you that have gone through something and really have that deep sense of nobody else should have to go through this. Mm -hmm. because, we believe no child should grieve alone. That's our... And, which is incredible, and it's particularly now when we're having all these issues with mental health, mm -hmm. and we really need to address it. We don't need to address it as an emergency. We need to address it as a long-term issue. Yes. And really help resolve it and make it work. Mm -hmm. These are these are the, the these kids are our future mm -hmm. in our society, mm -hmm. and if it wasn't for you, a lot of these kids would be lost, and they wouldn't have anywhere to go, which is a really sad comment. I, as a recent grandfather, six months, and you're three months away from being a grandmother. And, and you see these delicate little lives, and, and you pray that they don't have to suffer. Mm -hmm. And you pray that everything works well. Well, I'm in the position, as a medical educator, of producing the future workforce. Mm -hmm. And it's not just having an MD or a DO. Mm -hmm. It's being not just the best clinically, mm -hmm. but the most compassionate, the most empathetic. Mm -hmm. Doctors need to understand that that is as important as making the right diagnosis and administering the right therapy. Mm -hmm. You're dealing with somebody, you're dealing with somebody who has family. Mm -hmm. I mean, and you'll have these funny interactions that'll happen. I remember one time I had a, a patient, she was in her mid nineties, mm -hmm. had a perforated diverticuli with an abscess, mm -hmm. which we couldn't get it to it radiologically to drain it. And she was too old and too sick to uh, take her to surgery. So, of course, whenever I would go into a room to see a patient, I would ask the family to leave so I could ask questions. Mm -hmm. And I'll always remember, there's a large Cuban family, so all ten of them walked outside, and she looks at me and she goes, Doctor, I know I'm dying, and that's okay, but don't tell my family. <laughs> so I go outside, and there's a whole family. They're all crying, and they look at me and they say, Doctor, we know she's dying. Don't tell her. <laughs> so I'm thinking, this is like the worst secret in the world. <laughs> I got to carry it. Yeah, exactly right. But it's how people try to protect others. Yeah, don't mention it There's, because we don't want someone to cry. We're, we're advocates of, like, no tears are it, normal. And it allows children to cry because mm -hmm. if you as an adult can't shed a tear, they won't know that they can. Well, all you uh, big macho guys out there, I, had, I played Division One football. Big boys do cry. Mm -hmm. And I got that line from you, by the way. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the, uh, it's okay to let out your emotions, mm -hmm. which is one of the problems in medicine. Mm -hmm. You don't let out emotions. Mm -hmm. And that's why the depression and the suicide rate is so high. Mm -hmm. And we have to learn to do what you're doing. You are a spectacular example of what one individual can do to help so many. Well, so and, and the that. other thing that I really like about you is you take to the utmost extreme the saying that goes, if you're willing not to take the credit, there isn't anything you can't accomplish. And unfortunately, my profession doesn't have many of those people. But <laughs> the idea that your goal is to get to all the children. Mm -hmm. And I don't think you're going to stop until you do it. I haven't yet. <laughs> and I don't think you're going to slow down. And, and the other thing is grandchildren will energize you. I, I'm, I feel it already. And, you know, I think one of the things that we are, I, I'm so grateful for is the volunteer spirit that we have here in Nevada. 
as well and in Las Vegas. But we are facing the challenge post-pandemic to get volunteers in, back in the door. Uh, we did groups virtually through the pandemic, but now we're back to seeing kids in person. We have amazing training. Uh, if there's great camaraderie prior to the pandemic, people volunteered. We had volunteers that had been with us for 10 years. Wow. So now here we are and thankful for UNLV and um, interns that uh, we were able to work together and do our virtual groups through the pandemic. But now we're back to wanting to invite anyone in the community, doctor, lawyer, business person. You, we will we take all your hats off and then we train you uh, and to put a facilitator hat on. And that I, skills are great for medical school students. Oh, I think so too. I think so too. And also, do you ever have to treat your volunteers? Oh, we talk. We we treat them by having great practices. We do post group um, breathing exercises and um, coaching and um, centering and mindfulness. We do um, po uh, post group same thing. So we take good health because we are modeling. We know that we're modeling from the minute we step in to the minute that we leave, um, and we practice what we preach. Uh, it, you know, I'm not, we're not perfect all the time, but we those practices are, is what have kept us going over the last 12 years and kept those volunteers engaged with us because they came, they felt good. They we coach about self care and what does that mean to you? Because we're actually doing that with children, right? What self care is? What's a healthy coping skill for you? Here's what worked for me. Do you think what else? And, and is there a peer that has another idea? So. We take good care, and we, when we train others to run our program, they have to follow that model where they do pre- and post-group um, debriefings with their volunteers in order to be in good, healthy places. And, you know, intrinsically, volunteer is usually a good, and because you're yeah. interacting with children and with, with people, there's a feel-good component to that. But we are lifting a heavy subject, but we do use some laughter and activity to lighten that load or manage that load. But we also are okay in sitting in silence. We're okay in sitting in some heaviness because we know we're not fixers. We, and I think that's one thing in medical school because what resonates when we do some training with other professionals, they'll say, you know, I don't have to fix anybody. We're like, nope, can't fix this one. And you can take that hat off. And there's a great sigh of relief at that moment. Um, so we do try to take care of others and model what we think can be healthy. We work with um, employers. We have a grieve in the workplace type of program. That's another component for physicians is how how they choose to manage grief because they see it so much. Well, the, the Surgeon General just came out with a, a book about you know working in a toxic environment mm -hmm. and what that does. And I just can imagine how many kids did not see any coping behavior during the pandemic. We saw That's why an increase. Just went so up. We saw an increase in hospitalizations on the West Coast of 35% from alcohol, acute alcoholic liver disease, mm -hmm. which is an amazing, that's just one substance, mm -hmm. plus all the ways that people react when they're super stressed out and what the child sees with all that, which is many times not the best coping. Right. And we've seen that with domestic violence and all these other things that goes on with that. And our schools were usually a way that that they could identify if they saw some unhealthy things happen. Right. And when that was taken away Wait. from that equation, so I was uh, reading about an, uh, in Wisconsin that they were adding social work and therapists into pediatricians' offices because the suicide, the suicide we, we had a second grader last year that killed themselves, oh. uh, com completed suicide. And to your point, and I wanted to get back to that because I was at a luncheon with a group of um, philanthropists in town and 
I had to get up and I had to say, we do need to practice saying, do you, are you thinking about killing yourself? Mm -hmm. Because that, that statement and if the, uh, and the answer, because if we have to get comfortable with that at times um, in order to make sure we help folks get the support that they need, and to change that end result. And also, unfortunately, in those that are going through suicidal ideations, mm -hmm. you feel so alone. Mm -hmm. No, you think no one's hearing me. No one's right. observing my behaviors. And that's 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 really what about asking that question is. And I'm observing either you're making plans or you're giving things away, and and you haven't come out of your room for it. Whatever other um, behaviors you're observing, and then asking that question. So. It's not one that I, I say lightly, but I do think we need to feel comfortable about saying it. Um, I, I couldn't agree with you more, and I think that it could not have a better messenger than you and what you do for this community, what you do for this country, Kelly. I mean, this is really amazing. So I could talk with Kelly here for hours, <laughs> but then the studio would kick us out. So, thank you. Kelly, I want to thank you so much, not just for being here, but most importantly for what you do. And I have never met your parents, but boy, did they give you the right passion and the right heart. Las Vegas is lucky. Mm -hmm. thank, you. thank you. And with that, from Studio A in Las Vegas, let's make this world better. Let's be kinder. Let's listen. And be willing to talk about things that we generally don't. So with that, have a great holidays. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe, like, and comment on your favorite podcast platform. If you'd like to support the groundbreaking work that Dr. Greer is doing at the Roseman University College of Medicine, please donate at the link below. Thanks for tuning in to No Laughing Matter with Cuba Pete, as together we work to unite the heart and science of healthcare to serve all in our communities. See you next time.